we are going through the book of James right now. We've been going through the book of James, and we've been going through it verse by verse, passage by passage. And if you have been with us this entire time, you know that James has, the book of James is a very application-driven book. Uh, James gets down to the ground level, and he really talks about specific things that are happening amongst his audience. And instead of focusing on the theology behind the faith, James tends to focus upon what this faith, what this practice of our faith is supposed to look like. And, and so we talked about topics such as you know, dealing with temptations. We talked about showing partiality, what it means to care for the poor, taming the tongue. Um, we we talked about all these things, and ultimately what James wants to get to is he wants to talk about what a genuine faith looks like. Uh, what does a genuine faith look like? When you say you're a Christian, what does that look like? And if you, if you guys have been in the news at all in the past, in the past week, two weeks or so, um, you guys heard a, some reports come out about, about Southern Baptist churches. And a lot of the pastors there and being involved, um, being involved in, I guess, sexual abuse, child abuse. And, and it's a very sad story to read about. Um, if you guys are interested, it is online. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been following the news or not. Uh, I believe it's published by the Houston Chronicles. And, and a lot of the, I guess, evangelical leaders have responded to it. And us being a Southern Baptist church, we too have noticed this. And, and we, we, we want to talk about it. But, but the thing that, that, that I think about the most that comes from this report is that everyone from the outside looking in at these churches, looking in at these pastors, looking at these church leaders, Sunday school teachers, choir directors... One of the questions they'll be asking is that how can they be a Christian? Is that what faith really looks like? And I think we have to be asking that same question for ourselves. What does a genuine faith look like? If you guys do have questions about, you know, the whole Southern Baptist, um, I guess, sexual abuse uh, report and everything, if you guys have more questions about it, come talk to me, talk to Hanley. We, we'll be glad to engage with you about it. But that, that kind of report does bring to our attention that we need to take our faith seriously. That we need to care about what's going on day to day in our, in our daily walks. And we need to understand that this world, living in this world is hard. There's so much temptations everywhere. And sometimes it's just so easy to go with the flow of society. Sometimes it's so easy to go with the flow of where culture is taking us. And it's, and it's hard to obey God's word to be faithful, to demonstrate a genuine faith. Last time in our study in James, Hanley covered a difference between earthly wisdom and, and the wisdom from above, heavenly wisdom. And we saw in James chapter 3, verse 14, that earthly wisdom is driven by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And these motivations lead to disorder and vile practices. And tonight, we continue that kind of discussion into James chapter 4 verse 1 to 6, and tonight we will see and we will explore further into our, our internal desires, our internal sinful desires, and see where that pushes us, how that pushes us to disorder, pushes us to conflict, pushes us to fights. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. James chapter 4, 1 through 6. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for us. I'm reading from the ESV. This is God's Word. 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend to the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to us, he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James begins chapter 4 with a question. And, and he does this consistently throughout the letter. He always begins new sections of this book with a question. And here he's asking us in verse 1, what quarrels and what, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, what, why are you fighting each other? Why do you think you're in constant conflict with each other? <coughs> what we can gather from James' epistle here is that there is, there is this unity amongst his audience. That amongst the people he is writing to, there is fighting and there is quarreling going on. There is conflict between the people. And we are talking about Christians here. Right? We are talking about fights within the church. Fights between a brother in Christ and a sister in Christ to another brother in Christ to another sister in Christ. And, and that shouldn't be happening. And throughout scripture, we see this huge emphasis within the church that we need to be united under one. But here, Jesus is saying that they're butting heads. They're showing favor to one another. They're ignoring other people and valuing others. They, they're, they're, they're in constant conflict. I mean, James spent 12 whole chapters talking about the ton, most likely because there's probably a lot of verbal arguments going on. What causes these quarrels? What causes these fights? Isn't that the question that we tend to ask anytime we're in conflict? I mean, nobody here wants to be in a fight, right? He, he, I don't think anybody here wants to be in a fight. Maybe some of you. <laughs> but you, you never met, you, you'll never meet a couple, right? If you're talking to a couple who are dating you know, or who are married, and you, you never hear a couple say in the middle of a fight, they're all suddenly just stopping, they're like, you know what, honey? I'm so glad that we're in a fight right now. I'm so glad that we can just argue about this. Like, we, you, don't, you don't hear that. I mean, maybe the couple might say afterwards that they were glad that fight happened because they were able to address a certain issue. But in, never in the middle of it. In the middle of it, we find fights, we find arguments, we find conflicts difficult. So then what causes these things? What causes these fights and these quarrels amongst us? James answers this in this next sentence, which leads to our first point tonight. Our internal battle with our own sin. He answers his question with a, with a rhetorical question. Right? In verse 1, he says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Here he says, it's the passions in us that are causing war. So here it's talking about our sinful nature. And James here is saying that these passions, these are the cause of our external conflicts. 
The word passion here, in the Greek, it's it's hedone. It's where we get the English word for hedonism. Now, John Piper might have made Christian hedonism like this really great thing, and we all love Piper, and we all love Desiring God Ministries, and, and you know I'm all for it. But in Scripture, this word for for passion is always put in negative light. It's never meant to be a good thing. So next time you see John Piper, you can tell him that. <laughs> these, these passions here, they, they have a negative connotation in Scripture. They, they're not good pleasures. Instead, they're sinful ones. And they're ones that wages war against us. If you're reading, if you're reading from the NASB, I, I believe it says that uh, are these your passions, do they wage war amongst your members? In your members? James here, when he says members, it's the, he uses that word to mean the internal conflict within yourself, within members of your own body. He doesn't mean members amongst the church. He means these passions exist in you and they're waging war inside of you. We notice because he uses the same word for members back in chapter 3, verse 6, talking about how the tongue is a member of the entire body. And that's why in the ESV we can see that here it says the passions here are waging war within you. Short and simple. And James then details out how these passions play out in our external conflict. He lists three ways these sinful passions play out. First way we see is in the form of lust. Lusting after something you don't have. But you think you need. Verse 2 says that you desire and do not have. The word desire here is the same word for lust. And, and usually when we talk about lust, we think about something sexual. But lust is not just a sexual desire. The same word for lust here, the same word for desire here, is used in Luke 15 in the, in the parable of the prodigal son. And the, in the prodigal son, he left his father. We have taken all his money with him, spent it all out, and he was now just trying to make money so he can, he can get by, he can live another day. And he looks at his pigs that he's working at, working on the farm at. And he looks at these pigs, and he looks at these pigs, and he says, I wish, I desire, I long for what they eat. He was so hungry that he lusted for any kind of food. And this is the same kind of lust that James is talking about here. The same kind of desire that he's talking about here. And we all know what that, what that feels like. Because we've all been hungry before. And, and we, just, we just need something to satisfy that hunger. And James says here that if you're not careful with this. If, you, if this lustful desire is not tampered down. It can lead to murder. Now, I don't think James' audience is dealing with violence, per se. I don't think they're beating each other up. I don't think they're planning out murder scenes. I don't think we're reaching a point where they're drawing blood. There's no, like, first blood type of action going on here. I do believe, though, that these conflict, there is conflict amongst these Christians here. But these conflicts most likely have been verbal. But James understands that the desires that where these conflicts come from is the same way that Jesus describes murder 
in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, when Jesus equates murder and says that root emotion of where murder comes from is anger. And that anger is just as evil as the act of murder itself. And so James here is saying that, that these evil and sinful desires are just that serious. They're just as serious. That these aren't small sins. That these sins are just as dangerous and we must take them seriously. James then moves on to talking about his next emotion, envy. He says here, you covet but cannot obtain. And here he's talking about envying something that you believe you deserve. This is the negative usage of jealousy. Right? Being jealous for something isn't necessarily bad. Right? It, scripture does say that God is jealous for His glory. But the struggle here, the sinful part here, is, is when you're jealous for your own selfish ambition. That's what creates envy. When you're when you're, when you're looking around at the people around you, and, you're, and you're, you're, you see your friends, you see your family members, you see your co-workers, and, and you're wondering to yourself, why can't I have what they have? Why can't I have what they have? And we all struggle with this. We all struggle with this kind of emotion. We all struggle with envy in some way because when, when you say you're discontent, that's the exact same feeling. And our discontentment, it can drive us to do so many different things. It can drive us to binge watch TV, YouTube videos, read comic books, go to read manga, whatnot. It's because we do all these things because in our discontentment, we want to escape the reality of our unhappiness into a fantasy world. Where everything that we want is there. And without noticing that envious desire in us that drives us to do these things can also affect our relationship with others. I mean, imagine if you just come home from a long day of work and you just think you deserve to just relax, sit down, watch some TV, and all of a sudden your friend texts you and saying he needs help. He needs you to pick him up. He's stranded in the middle of downtown LA. And you need, and he's asking for you to pick him up. And you just think to yourself, man, I just had a hard day. I just, I just microwave my meal and, the, and I'm ready to eat. I'm ready to watch some TV. This late game's about to get started. And, and here I get distracted. And I can't do what I want to do. Where, what's going on in your heart at that time? How do you feel toward your friend during that time? Or maybe say like that's not even close friend, just a just another person in the fellowship. He just needs help. Right? If it's not a close friend, how does that make you feel? And so these desires that we have, these envious desires can affect us. And it can it can drive us in certain ways. You know, and sometimes we can be running so hard to achieve something. Because we want it so badly that we're willing to undermine the people around us. Willing to push them aside. And soon conflict arises. And you're bickering with one another. You're arguing. And so what we've seen so far 
and these desires, these passions within us, is that right here, the major complaint is that we want something that we don't have. You want something that you don't have. Simply put, you just feel like your life is missing something. That there's a hole that you cannot fill. And so you seek something, anything to fill that hole up. Something to make you feel complete, satisfied, content. What is that thing that drives you? And how is that one object that you really, really want? How is that object of your obsession? How does that influence your relationships with the people around you? James drives this point further. He says that you don't have what you passionately desire because you don't ask. Instead, you pursue your desires with your own might, your own power, your own wisdom. You fight to obtain what you do not have. Now, if you think about this, we, we tend to have a hard time asking for help. <coughs> we're, we're even, especially amongst us Asians who live, grew up probably in the honor-shame culture, like even though we do live in America where it's less of that, we, we, we feel there's a shamefulness when we do ask for help. There's a shamefulness when we do ask for help. I like. I remember talking to a friend, and and maybe this per this person needs to catch a ride to the airport, and and this person just starts complaining how how he or she needs to needs to park there, needs to take the time to drive there, and and they just wish they had someone by their side, maybe. Maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend who can who can take them to the airport, a family member. And they complain and and sometimes and when I hear this and I, and I was I'll simply just respond. I remember getting this kind of complaint and responding like, "Well, did you did you ask anyone to help you?" And the answer was no. And for some for some weird reason, sometimes we just feel too ashamed, too feel like we're t afraid of being too much of a burden for other people that we don't end up asking for help. But more importantly, in this passage, in this context, we don't turn to God and ask Him for help. We don't ask Him to fulfill our desires through prayer. Mainly because we are ashamed to. That deep down, what drives us are feelings of unhappiness, discontentment, weakness, shame, and guilt, and we are afraid to give, to reveal those to God. Think for a moment with me. When we pray to God, sometimes in our heads we think we have to pray in a certain way. We know we must glorify Him with our prayers. And so we end up using words in a specific way to think that we can please Him with these words in our prayers. And so we end up praying generally, superficially, about what we really want in our hearts. And yet, Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 7, to ask whatever you wish. Ask for whatever you wish. 
be brutally honest to God about our deepest desire, about the hole in our lives that we cannot seem to fill. But instead, we end up asking for something that we desire selfishly. And that's what James says here, that we ask wrongly to spend our own, on our own passions. And so let, let me just spend a little more time here because, because I understand that for most of us here, when we pray, we, we know what prayer should be about. It's about going to God, honestly, and, and we pray and we, and we should be honest and we should be coming to Him of our guilt and our sins, ask, confessing and asking for repentance, asking for forgiveness. I, I know most of us know that here. But let's take a moment to think about you know, the context of our prayer and what's going on in our hearts as we're praying to God. For instance, before sermons, <coughs> I'll be praying to myself. And sometimes you guys see me, I'll be walking, sometimes I need to walk around the streets, around the parking lot, and I, I'm just praying. And, and, and I, I need to pray to God that, God, I, will you be the one that moves these sermons amongst the people's hearts? And then I'll pray that, and I'll say those words to God. But deep down, sometimes I do, there's a feeling that I, I, can, I can sense it there, that I need to be repentful of, a sinful feeling, that if God does indeed touch the people's hearts that who I preach to, somehow I can get that glory, the credit for preaching that sermon. But I, I'm too afraid to pray that or reveal that. I just feel it, but I continue just trying to say the words as if saying it will make it right. What do your prayers look like? What are you saying? And how does it match up to what you're feeling? And there are times when, that, when I feel that I need to stop myself and just be honest to God and just say that if I'm praying for the wrong things and don't grant this request. What are your prayers like? What are you saying to God? Are you asking are you asking God to really truly fulfill the underlying desires of your requests? If you're praying for marriage, you're praying for a dating relationship, are you truly praying to God about something that can truly fulfill your desire? Or are you just trying to pray to Him to have something that you think will satisfy you? When all things that you get, all things that you receive from God, all blessings should be blessings to glorify Him. So in other words, pray honestly, but pray honestly about your desires. When you're praying for that future job, pray that I become an avenue to glorify God, not just a way to satisfy your, your desire for honor or power. Pray for your finances. Pray for it as a way to trust in God and His provision, and not as a way to find security in your life. Pray for friendships. That there will be a way for you to serve God because so that way you can serve others. But not as a way to build up your popularity. 
What are your underlying desires? Be honest with God about them. Admit them to God that they may be driving your prayer requests. And if they are, then pray to God that they, He will not fulfill those requests for you. So that you can learn how to turn your jealousy and your selfish ambition away from these things of the world towards godly desires and holy ambition for God and His glory. And that is the whole point of it all. Which leads then into our second point. Because James here does not stop right here. He continues on. He shows us that our war with our sinful desires isn't just a battle within us. It's also a spiritual battle between us and God. And James here cries out. He cries out in verse 4, You adulterous people! After spending most of his letter addressing his audience as brothers, my brothers, he turns the corner and he calls them out according to your sin, saying, you adulterous people, James here does not take these conflicts lightly. He realizes they stand for something much more serious, and adultery is what he's referring to here. And you hear James is talking about our adulterous nature. And he's, and he's talking specifically about our spiritual adultery. I mean, we saw this throughout, his, throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. God does not hesitate to call Israel adulterers in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 57 verse 3, God commands Israel, You draw near sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and loose woman cause Israel, his own people, that. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, God says again to Israel, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. And James here is the same way. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, stop entertaining this world and commit yourself faithfully to God. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot love the world and love God at the same time. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world and the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot have a divided heart. You cannot be a double-minded man who swerves to and fro from one place to another. You have to be steadfast and faithful. But as fallen beings, we all have a heart that's prone to wander. Prone to leave the ways God has commanded of us and fall into temptation to the world. We all deal with these emotions. All the same emotions. All of us. The context may be different, but the core emotion is the same. The same desires for power, for control, for contentment, satisfaction, honor, and glory. And what we constantly forget is that God is able to satisfy and fulfill all these desires. But instead, we seek fulfillment in the things of the world and we pursue them. We pursue the world. Do you then see how God calls us adulterers? 
God created us to be His image bearer, to be His holy people, and yet we forsake the Creator and seek to create an image for ourselves. We, we think we can become avatars, creating images for ourselves, controlling our own lives, controlling our personalities, our statuses, our dreams. We pursue our ambitions, our desires, we try to gain superiority over one another. Keep thinking to ourselves that we are more entitled than others. That we're entitled to more than we, than we deserve. And in our rat race to be the best, we fight and we quarrel to one another to no end. But in reality, we are not powerful. We are not wise. We're not even good. We are fallen beings with a hole so big in our hearts that only God can fill. We are in need of a Savior, a Messiah, one who can restore the image of God in us. We are created not to have our own authority, but to submit to a higher authority, one who knows what is best for us. But as our hearts are prone to wander, guys, as our hearts are prone to wander, be, be encouraged that God has never been unfaithful to us. Be encouraged that God has never been unfaithful to us. He does not leave us. Instead, He pursues us jealously. And that's why I think verse 5 says here. Now, as we read verse 5, I want to take a closer look at it because verse 5 is, is one of the hardest verses to translate in the New Testament. This is one of the most debated passages. Because James here, he says, he, he says he's quoting scripture, but nobody knows where he's quoting from. I mean, if you, if you try to, if, you're, if your Bibles are one of those that have references on them, you, you won't see a quote next to it. Instead, what was more likely is that James is summarizing a theological, a theological truth found in Scripture into one sentence. But even the sentence itself is very confusing. confusing. Let me uh, show you an example. Between three of our most famous English translations, what this looks like. In the NASB, it says, God yearns jealously regarding the Spirit, capital S, that He has caused to dwell in us. In the ESV, same thing, but this time spirit is a lowercase s. In NIV, it says the spirit that God has caused to dwell in us yearns enviously. Well, which one of these are right? Because they all mean different things, right? Based off the translation. And so if you're like me, you want to resolve these things. Because if, if you don't and you see all these different English translations, you just ask yourself, should I, can I trust my English Bible anymore? Should I just... Learn Greek instead. You don't have to learn Greek, but here's here's what we here's what here's what let me let me do this to, to show that let me do this let me walk you guys through this so it's helpful for you. The NSAB they 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 translate spirit to a capital S and and the Greek word for spirit there's no capitals in Greek so you, when a lot of times you can't tell context is what influences us what tells us what most authors mean when they say the word spirit. Right. 
And so here, the NASB, the NASB says that James is referring to the Holy Spirit, the capital S. But this, I think, is the weakest translation of all three. Because nowhere in James does he ever talk about the Holy Spirit. Never mentioned once. And so it's very unlikely he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. Except James tends to talk more, a lot more about us. About our souls, about our hearts. So most likely this Spirit refers to our inner being. And so let's look at these next two translations. And honestly, I, I think you can go either way with these next two. I mean, if you, if you go to MSB, that's, that's cool too. That's, that's up to you. I, we can't be dogmatic about what translations we choose here. I think none of it are, is heresy. But it does change the way we, we read this and read the passage. And so, and so let, me, let me talk about the NIV because for me, I actually fall more to ESV translations. So let me talk a little about NIV first. NIV says the spirit that God causes, has caused to dwell in us yearns enviously. Here, pretty much within the context of this passage, it's saying that our spirit, our souls, our hearts have a tendency to go to envy, have a tendency to, to wander away from God. And it fits well within this passage, right? We've just been talking about that. And MacArthur actually takes this view. But I don't agree with MacArthur here. Don't tell TMS. Instead, I lean more towards the ESV translation because I believe it fits the flow of the logic better. So let, me, let me walk through this and, and show you what I mean. Let's follow James's train of thought. He begins the chapter, chapter 4, by pointing out the fact that our simple desires causes conflicts. Verse 1. He goes on to, to specify that some more. He, our internal war within our hearts and, the, and our sins, it, it all overflows out. That, that war overflows out into our interaction with everyone else. But more than that, our inward battle within ourselves makes us adulterers in the eyes of God. So, therefore, we consistently seek to love the world instead of God, and hence break our covenant relationship with God. And that's why James says here, James is saying here then, you adulterers, does it mean nothing to you that God yearns jealously for you with all of His heart? Does that not mean anything to you? That God yearns for you. Yearns for you so much that He is willing to sacrifice His Son for you. Why do you keep on wandering away from God and towards the world then? And if we follow that logic, it flows into verse 6. Which talks about how God's grace is more. God's grace is overly, overly abundant. There is no end to His well. The streams of His grace run for eternity. His grace engulfs us and washes away our sins. If we take the ESV translation of verse 5, James' point is this, that God's jealous desire for us does not return empty. His grace is more than enough to cover our sins, to cover our spiritual adultery. And He washes us and makes us white as snow, pure and undefiled, worthy to be a bride whom He promised to Jesus Christ, His Son. 
But this grace, this grace isn't universal. Meaning, it isn't for every single soul in this world. James ends verse 6 with a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, all the things we've just been talking about, the passions, the desires, the envy, the jealousy, the love for the world, all that builds up our pride. Builds us, builds us up. Our pride that says that I am better than God. That I deserve more than what God gives me. But brothers and sisters, do not let your pride consume you. Check your pride constantly. Ask yourself questions. What is your motivation? What is your desire? Does it glorify God? Because your pride can lie to you, can deceive you. It can tell you that you know better than God. It can tell you that God is not the greatest treasure in the world. But Scripture tells us different. Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is worth all of our praise. That all things are counted as loss in comparison to Christ. Therefore, go to God in humility, confessing to Him your adulterous desires, your sinful lusts, your envious eyes. Go to God and tell Him how much you have done wrong against Him. Go to Him and tell Him how lowly you are, how wretched you are, how vile you are, how unworthy you are of any blessing. Admit to Him that you are sorry for your conflicts with one another. That is not just the other person's fault, but it's your fault as well. That you are the one to blame. That you have dishonored God's name. Because the way you have fought and quarreled. And when you come to God in true brokenness and humility. God's promises hold true. He will give you grace. He gives grace to the humble. And as a result of that grace. God officially ends his conflict with you. And just as He has forgiven you, you take that same attitude and you forgive the people around you, the people you're in conflict with. When you look at the person, when you look at another person, and you're filled with God's grace, you are reminded that that person is in need of Christ just as much as you are. And all of a sudden, you no longer see this conflict as if it's about you. As if it's about this person in front of you. You no longer see your life in that way. Instead you see it. As something that's about God. It's about honoring Him. Pleasing Him. Demonstrating Him. Showing how the gospel has made a true and deep impact in your life. And it becomes beautiful. The way we relate to one another guys. The reason why the unity of a church is so important <laughs> is because it matters to God. It matters for the gospel. If we can't even love one another, how are we to love the world and share the gospel with them? This, this is what honors God. This is what glorifies God. This is what makes the gospel of Christ beautiful. It tells the world that you've seen a different tune. That you're friends with God and His Son and enemies with the world.
final point, I guess, wrap things up. Where does our fights and quarrels come from? It comes from our sinful hearts. How then do we fix our sinful heart issue? Like only be fixed by the gospel, by humbly seeking God's grace. Guys, He is full of it, and He will give it to you. He has more than enough for you, for everyone else around you. Demonstrate that grace. Show people how much you love God in your interactions. Constantly watch your hearts. Because our hearts, our hearts are prone to wander. But yet God's grace is more. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, God, for your son. I thank you, God, for your son, whom you've given up for us. That, Lord, you pursue us jealously. And we we don't deserve it. Instead, we constantly try to exalt ourselves above you. And that leads into conflict with other people. Lord, may we then humble ourselves. And the only way to humble ourselves is by recognizing how much how much greater you are and yet how much sacrifice you have made for us. Lord, you have done so much for us. You have humbled yourself to the lowest so that we can be covered in your righteousness and be lifted up with honor with your Son. Oh Lord, what a joy it is to know you in Jesus Christ. So then may that be our rallying cry. May we continue then to wage war against the sins of our hearts, but to do so with your grace by our side. Thank you, God, for everything. May we then go out and show the world this grace that you have shown us. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.